0: Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for another evening for us to come together, Lord. And I pray tonight that you will help, uh, God, that your sovereignty, your plan, your control, uh, uh, your goodness, God, your your preparation for your son, Lord, that we would be uh, evidently uh, made aware of your sovereignty and your creation and uh, throughout time, Lord. And I pray that you would guide our, our thoughts this evening, Lord, and may we uh, leave uh, here together more appreciative and and struck with the the knowledge of the sovereignty that you have over time and events. God, praise your name. Amen. Well, this evening, what I wanted to do, I wanted to do something a little bit different when I was asked to do something this close to Christmas. I wanted to do something that was related to Christmas, but from a little bit of a different perspective. I have an appreciation for history, a topic I find fascinating is the intertestamental period and what happened during that time. And we have over 400 silent years of after Israel gets back from captivity to when we see the angels making people aware that the Messiah and John the Baptist would be born. So we have quite a a gap of time there. And what I wanted to be able to do was fill in that gap for us to walk through. So I know there is a handout that most everyone got. But if they did not, there are two children who have been recruited to pass those out to anyone who did not. So just raise your hand as they're walking around. What I wanted to do is not just present a history lesson for us. What I want to do is impress upon us all the reality that even though Scripture is silent, God is not, that God is still working, and that even when... The pages of of Scripture, we have that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That didn't mean that God was not active, that God was not working, that God was taking a break until Jesus would be born, that he is always moving, God is always moving to work out the events of history. If you haven't read through Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah and read even in those prophets the actions that God takes in the nations around them and using Assyria and Babylon and the Edomites and and other nations, the Ammonites around them, using those nations for his own purposes. God is always working and there is not a ruler alive that is outside of his sovereign control. That even the most wicked is still uh, on their throne to serve God's ultimate purposes. And that's something that we can take rest in. But what I wanted to do this evening is pick up where we see Israel released from captivity and work our way up to the time of Christ. That we see two different worlds in just a few hundred years. see Israel get released from captivity and go back to the promised land, you have kind of a fractured people who have just borne many years of captivity, a different generation that had left, and rebuilding a life, rebuilding a country, uh, rebuilding a city and their religious life. Then it goes dark, curtains close, and then the curtains open, and you have groups running around like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. You have Rome in power, and you kind of ask yourself, how did we get here? How How did we find ourselves in this situation? And that's what I want to give a little bit of context to tonight, I created a little bit of a PowerPoint. It is nothing that impressive. It is actually my rookie attempt at a PowerPoint presentation, so there's nothing moving. There's no noise or animation, so I apologize. We find, first of all, where do we get this information from? Where, where do we reap this information? And there are a few main sources that, that we can turn to. The first is the book of First and Second Maccabees. Those are apocryphal books. Now, normally we hear Apocrypha and we think, avoid it, it's weird, it's not scriptural. And there are some books in the Apocrypha that would be considered fanciful, Bell and the Dragon, Tobit. And... But the book of First and Second Maccabees is actually a historical recounting of much of this time. So we are able to get quite a bit of information from that. It's considered to be historically accurate for the most part. Obviously history is always usually written by the victors, right? But it is something that we can glean quite a bit of information from. The other two main sources are two works from the the Jewish historian Josephus who wrote After Christ. He was tasked with the responsibility to write down the history of the Jews. His main two pieces that we could lean on for this, the Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish War, is what we get a lot of information from. So if it is something that you are interested in for further reading. Um, there are other books, but those are p- more primary sources that you could turn to f- for some interesting readings. Most of the information that, w- that we'll cover tonight are going to be from those those works. Now, when we are near the end of the Old Testament, if you're approaching it chronologically, you s- see that Israel is taken off into captivity by Babylon. Right? We know the northern tribes... You see at the top here, Assyria. You'll see a little purple line. That's the Assyrian captivity where the northern tribes of Israel are taken away. And Assyria had a philosophy of taking captives and kind of spreading them out. You would erase cultures. You would erase powers. You wouldn't have to worry about things rising back up if you just scattered everyone. So that was kind of their philosophy. So that, the northern ten tribes mostly became scattered and lost track of at that point. But then you have the green line here. The Babylonian captivity a little while later, in 586 BC, Israel is taken into captivity by Babylon. So, this was bringing them to Babylon to make them Babylonian. It would make them into Babylonian citizens. You see the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not their Jewish names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are their Jewish names. But they Renamed them. Daniel was renamed Belteshazzar. They were given different names. They were given identities there in Babylon and attempted to be made into Babylonians. Now, that was, uh, time was a time of extreme testing for the Jewish people because they tried so desperately hard to retain their Jewishness, to retain their culture. You see synagogues pop up at this time when they're taken into captivity they slowly, the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar conquers them, puts Judah under tribute, and Jehoiakim refuses a tribute, leading them to a captivity, and then we see the Persian empire rise. So a bigger empire rises from the east, moves to the west, overtakes the Babylonian empire, now we have the big guy on the block, the Persian empire. This is where we see the book of Esther take place. You also, under the uh, you have the decree of Cyrus. And it starts three major returns. Now, Persia had its own way of dealing with captives. And you see from this map how big the Persian Empire really was and how much land they covered. And they wanted the people in their lands to be happy. They wanted them to be able, if they were happy, then they didn't have to wor- worry about coming down on them and trying to impose their will upon them. And so... They would allow people to return to their land. And God is using all of these things for His own purposes, His own glory. And you see that Cyrus starts three major returns to the land. One is led by Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel leads a people back to the promised land and they rebuild the temple. That is their concentration. They're weeping at the thought of uh, Solomon's temple having been destroyed. And now this is what they're left with. So they want to build something back up. But it is nothing in comparison to what Solomon's temple was. The second major return was led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah concentrated on building up the walls and defenses of Jerusalem. And you see that battling the people, Sanballat in the area there, the rulers that had risen to power in the void of the Jews leaving. And then you have Ezra. And Ezra rebuilt the people through the law. At this point, this is really a time of cultural development for the Jews. This is going to be all from now until the point of Christ, a time where Judaism is kind of morphing into something a little bit different in many different ways. In Nehemiah chapter 10, it mentions the men of the great synagogue. That's oftentimes thought to be the starting of the Sanhedrin, that once they were removed from the land, you have a group of people coming together and their desire is to reform and to keep pure the religious observances of the Jews. And you have the beginning of this group of men that are brought together for that express purpose. Like I said, you also have the development of the synagogue in captivity that when they come back, they build synagogues throughout the land where they can go and worship on a regular basis. Now, when they get back, they don't find an empty land. You read through the book of Nehemiah, you understand that. They don't find an empty land. They find a land that people have kind of spread out Israel leaves and people are like, ah, let me stretch my arms out and take over the rest of the land. And you have some Jews, uh, the poorest of the poor, who were left behind. You have a mixed race of sorts crop up in Samaria. And we're familiar with the Samaritans and the Gospel of John, the woman at the well. It's a racially mixed group of people. Manasseh was the son of a high priest in Israel, and he ends up marrying the daughter of Sanballat, which was the ruler that we see in the book of Nehemiah. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim. Now, if that sounds familiar, the woman at the well, when speaking with Christ, says, you know, we worship on the mountain, Mount Gerizim, and they worship in Jerusalem. Where is the right place to worship? This is all when this is happening. The Samaritans really rise during the time of the captivity so that when they get back, there's this natural animosity going on between the people of Judea and the people of Samaria, and this Samaritan schism. And that will be something that will crop up even more and more as we continue on through this. You'll see there Mount Gerizim right in the middle, but you see different names start to pop up. You have the Decapolis in the right-hand side of the screen. Those are Gentile cities that pop up uh, more in the time of the Greeks in the future here. That, just to give you a little bit of context here, the Samaritans would kind of be right in the middle there you know, around Mount Gerizim and north of that. Persia is the main kid on the block. But empires don't last. So Persia grows up and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We saw that map, how vast the empire was. In 333 to 165 BC, we see the Hellenistic period. Hellenistic is a reference to Greek culture. We'll talk a little bit about what Hellenization looks like. But it is Greek culture. It is the Greek empire moving in. Uh, you have Philip of Macedon who grows in strength and power, and he hands off his growing empire, his burgeoning empire, to his son, Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great lives uh, 335 to 323. If you ever want to wonder if you've been productive in your life and you want to be made feel insignificant, consider the life of Alexander the Great. He defeats Persia at the Battle of Isis, ends up going down into Israel. He defeats Jerusalem. He builds, there's Tyre out in in the Mediterranean. He builds a land bridge so that he can get out there and defeat them. And he comes down to Jerusalem and he ends up dying in 323 after conquering the known world in just 10 years. Before the advent of modern weapons and vehicles, obviously, all that stuff. They're cruising. They come down, go down into Egypt come back up go east into india and conquering the known world in 10 years alexander the great had some issues in and of himself and one of them was that he ran himself so hard that probably it led to his death he didn't know how to relax he didn't know how to to call it quits he had started to alienate aggravate his army further east he pushed and they started to rebel against him and it all took such a toll on him that he ended up dying he dies without an heir, with no succession plan. So when you conquer the known world in 10 years, there's not really a lot of time for stability to to set in. You don't have checks and balances. You don't have systems set up because your only thought for that 10 years is to conquer, to conquer, to conquer, to push further and further and further. And one of his desires was to spread Hellenization further and further. The ideal culture and the ideal way of thinking He wanted to spread it throughout the known world. So you see here an arrow here starts off in Macedonia and hops over to Turkey, modern day Turkey, curves down to Egypt. He conquers Egypt and then look what he does going all around Persia, the former Persian Empire to conquer. It is something remarkable all in 10 years. It would be difficult enough just to walk that in 10 years, never mind to have like an army and battles and conquer people. I can't even understand <laughs> what occurred at uh, that time. But he dies, like I said, without a succession plan. So the empire splinters immediately. You have four main successors. Cassander, Lysimachus, and I'm not even saying that correctly. My mom can correct. Symmachus, Lys- Lysimachus. Ptolemy and Antigonus. And now Antigonus you don't really think of, but he is followed by a guy named Seleucus. So the main two that you're going to want to pay attention to here are Seleucus and Ptolemy. Those are your main two guys you want to pay attention to because they end up taking up most of the known world. And you'll see from this map here that the yellow area is the Syrian Empire. This is Seleucus, the Seleucids. And then the blue empire below that goes down into Egypt, works its way up, is the Ptolemy Empire. And that is the two main seats of what's going on. And then what kind of happens over in in Greece and Rome in this time is not a whole lot. People lose sight of that, and we'll see and pick it up a little bit later, where an empire, a republic, starts to form in Rome once these guys are done battling each other. When we're speaking of the land of Judea, for the first part, after Alexander the Great dies, the Ptolemies are in charge. It's the Ptolemaic Empire. And this is a fascinating time of history. Uh, You see the Alexandrian library pop up, and it is their desire to form the best source of knowledge in the world. And remember, this is all part of Hellenization, and pushing Hellenization down into Egypt, which had its own strong culture, obviously, that we're aware of. You see, during this time, they want to form a library and have authoritative texts of every book in the world. And they realize they have this Hebrew Bible, but guess what? No one reads Hebrew. <laughs> None of them knew what Hebrew was, but they wanted a copy of it. So what they end up doing is... They enlist, they say, 70 scribes to create the Septuagint. It's often referred to as the LXX, which in Roman numerals is 70, standing for the 70 scribes that went into the translation process. We see the formation of the Septuagint at this time, which is pretty crucially important for us today, with understanding the Greek of the New Testament It helps us understand how it was that they were using the Greek language at that time. How it was best understood. Really a fascinating time. You also see the rise of the Sanhedrin during this time. That they become kind of a ruling factor within the land of Judea. And they are tolerating Hellenization at this point. They're tolerating it because as long as it's not impinging on their religious observances... They're fine with it. As long as it's not keeping them from worshiping God, they, it's live and let be, basically. Now, Hellenization is the adoption of Greek thought and culture. They wanted to make people Greek in the way of thinking. And, and we see this a little bit in the New Testament through the writings of Paul and, and people that he interacts with. This idea quickly surrounds Judea. And Judea is really kind of a shrunken down Power at this point, kind of in the, the southern tribes of Judah and around Jerusalem. It's not this expansive power that they were before the fall, before the kingdom split. The Jews within are surrounded by this Hellenization, and they are really two completely different ways of thinking, where the Jews were very one way thinking, they had scripture. It was God-ordained, God-inspired, one source, one truth. There was one God. They believed in an omnipotent God in conformity to a divinely sanctioned law, that they were committed to this. And the Greek way of thinking was pretty much opposite of that, where there was no one main God. It really had elevated man's own thought above anything else, so that your way of thinking and reasoning was to be more contemplated than any other source like scripture, any other teaching. that It was really about your own way of thinking and developing that thought in your own philosophy, your own way of thinking. To seek God was the ultimate wisdom in the way of Judaism. And in Hellenism, they bowed to no law. This is one interesting quote that I found. The Hebrew believed in the beauty of holiness, and the Greek believed in the holiness of beauty. So the Hebrews believed in the beauty of holiness and the Greeks believed in the holiness of beauty. Two different, drastically different ways of thinking. You you really have to keep this in mind as we go through this because it is so much going on. You have the Ptolemaic Empire going on and the Hellenization is invading all around them, but it's not keeping them from being able to worship how they want, so they tolerate it. Then we have the Seleucids. So at about 200 B.C., you the Seleucids come into power. Now, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were going back and forth, back and forth. The land of Judea switched hands six times within, within this time period where Judah was kind of left alone. But if you looked on a map, basically through the area of Philistia and Galilee, kind of a main road along the coast there, the armies are just going up and down, up and down, up and down battles, and Judea and Jerusalem's kind of left off on the sidelines, kind of watch what's going on and switch their allegiance every time that someone else comes into power. At this point, you have the rise of the Hasidim. The Hasidim, a nice guttural. The Hasidim were the pious ones, they were the ones that were militant. They wanted to fight against Hellenization. You also have the formation of the rise of the Pharisees during this time. As long as they had religious freedom, they wouldn't fight. They just wanted freedom to worship. And you'll see that the role of the Pharisees really grows over time. And it's kind of a fascinating thing because if you just open up your Bible to the New Testament and you read and you're thinking, wow, the Pharisees are a bunch of creeps, (laughs) they're they're just a bunch of you know hypocritical oaths right and you really see that for a long time the pharisees are the are the ones who are about the observation of scripture and and maintaining it and fighting against these the hellenization really standing up for the purity of scripture to the point of where many of them are faced with times of putting their lives on the line you also see the rise of the sadducees another class of power The Sadducees and the Pharisees never really got along. Once in a while they teamed up, and we see that in the Gospels where they teamed up against Christ. But the Sadducees accepted and embraced Hellenization. They were fine with it. They were much more modern in their thinking. We know that they denied the resurrection. We know that they did not embrace all of the Hebrew Scripture. They were at odds with with Pharisees, and they were much more comfortable with everything that was going on during this time. Before I move on here... With the Hellenization that's going on, you have, during this time, the Decapolis forms. It's ten major cities, mostly Gentile, on the east side of the Jordan River. And you see those pop up in the Gospels, where it mentions the Decapolis, Christ's ministries. You have a change in culture, where suddenly, with these Seleucids and the Ptolemies, you see things like theaters and gymnasiums and hippodromes, where they have like chariot races, all of these things start to pop up all around Israel. And these are all things that we know that oftentimes they were not in the theater, even in their athletic competitions, were not competing or performing in a way that would be considered acceptable by Judaism. Often clothing optional. Often morality is kind of out the window in these types of events uh, that would take place. The Hellenization that ends up reaching them is not a pure Hellenization that like Alexander the Great would hold to. It was really kind of a lewd and licentious version of it. By the time it reaches them, if you can put it in a modern way of thinking, it appealed most to the young liberal generation. We can kind of sympathize with that a little bit, where the older, more reserved, the more serious about God's word, the Torah, the observation of the law... They didn't want anything to do with it, but the young generation coming in saw the appeal of the flesh that existed, and they saw it as an opportunity, basically, to flaunt sin on a public stage. This really started to create a gap in the cultures. During this time, you have lots of different Seleucid rulers. We're going to skip through all of them, and we're going to talk about one guy named Antiochus the Fourth, or Antiochus Epiphanes. Maybe you've heard that name before a fun name to say, you can try it out, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, me, <laughs> he, he gave himself this name, and it means manifest God. He saw himself as the manifestation of Zeus on earth. And now he is in charge of the land of Israel, a Syrian ruler from the Seleucid Empire. They actually, this is a, a funny thing that I read, they nicknamed him Antiochus Epimedes, which means the mad. So he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, so a play on words there. At this point, you still had, up to this point, a, Zay- a priest of the line of Zadok in place. And it's this point that he deposes the last Zadokite priest, Onias III. He is kicked to the curb. The last line of a true priest of the line of priests going all the way back to Zadok's. Kicked to the side, Onias III was actually a pro-Seleucid priest, but he tried to keep a foot in both kingdoms and still tried to appeal to the Seleucids. But his brother Joshua comes along, buys the priesthood from Antiochus, changes his name to Jason, which was a very Greek name, and pledges to change Jerusalem, that he's going to be part of the Hellenization. And soon he's replaced by Menelaus, who was the first non-Zedekite priest. This infuriates the Jews. Antiochus Epiphanes, if he had one great talent in his life, it was to infuriate the Jews. He did everything he could to to enrage them. They hated his rule, and they hated everything that was going on because now it was starting to affect their religious observances. So he is fighting a battle against Egypt, and word comes back to Israel that Antiochus Epiphanes was killed in battle. And the people get a boldness that they had never seen before and rise up and start to slaughter all of the Antiochus Epiphanes supporters and sympathizers within the government, within the temple. The apostate priests were killed. The temple, all the filth is cleaned out. And for a moment, the old regime was back in charge only for them to find out that Antiochus Epiphanes wasn't actually dead. <laughs> So he comes back to Israel, back to Judea, and finds that there has been a rebellion in his absence when they thought that he was dead. At this point, it is a no more sympathy at all. It is all-out war against the Jewish thought, the Jewish culture. They loot the temple. They take everything out of it that is of value. They restricted outward Jewish worship. No more circumcision. Sacrifices, the... Holidays were outlawed. All of this stuff is going on. And then he decides that the temple is going to be a place of worship for Zeus. And he sets up a statue for Zeus in the temple. And also with Dionysus and Athena. So you can imagine how this makes a Jewish person feel, right? This would not sit well with you. Only to make matters worse, he decides to bring in a pig and sacrifice it on the altar in the temple. And if you know anything about kosher items, we know that would not be an acceptable thing. It outraged people. He killed many non-conforming Jews, and he had an army of 22,000 men that went around the whole countryside just to kill people who were still observing Judaism the way that the Bible decrees, the way that the Torah told them to. They would sell women and children off into slavery. They pillaged, looted, burnt houses and villages down and killed without mercy. So at one point, Antiochus' thugs reach a small village named Modin. And in this village of Modin, a Jewish person that was on their side goes to make an offering on a pagan altar, and a priest named Mattathias kills him. Just straight up, gets up, and kills the guy. It was the breaking point. It comes to his local village, and he had, had enough. This launches what we call the Maccabean Revolt. Mattathias is the father of the Maccabees. His sons take up the battle and start to do what they can to deliver the uh, the Jews. Now you'll see one of the side of a handout is the... Hashing out of the the Hasmoneans are the line of uh, the Maccabees. So the Hasmonean line, you'll see at the top there, you have Mattathias in 166 BC. That's when he died. What follows after him is important. So I wanted to give that to you so you can kind of see a, a flow of things. Now, he was the father of the family. He had five sons that ruled with him. They enlisted a hodgepodge collection of men who were not soldiers but started an insurrection army against the, the Seleucids, against Antiochus. They were often aided by the rise of another empire to the east, the Parthenians. This empire is rising and they're causing problems for the Seleucids, so the Seleucids and Antiochus can't focus on knocking down the insurrections that are popping up throughout the country. And so they pick their points of battle, and it's not like a two major armies meet out in the field and they duke it out. They do raids, they set traps for the Seleucid soldiers and cause a lot of confusion and a lot of damage throughout the land. After Mattathias dies, Judah, the Maccabee, also known as the Hammer, takes over. He rules for six years. He has the Battle of Mizpah. And the Syrian general, at the Battle of Mizpah, the Syrian general was so confident in their victory that he invited a bunch of other people, businessmen, merchants, to come and to purchase the people he was about to capture in this battle. And they even had prices posted in the villages around them of how much they would cost. That was counting the eggs before they hatch scenario. And he ends up being defeated by Judah the Maccabee and his army. They eventually gain a victory in Jerusalem in 164. They clean out the temple and this is what we observed as Hanukkah. The observation of what happened at this point. The, the oil that lasted for eight nights in the temple. Hanukkah is an observation of that time. But Judah the Maccabee quickly loses the support of religious leaders. So we get through a bunch of other leaders that I don't want to spend all the time with. But Jonathan becomes the first Hasmonean high priest. So he is a ruler. He is a brother of Judah. Judah dies. Jonathan takes over. He takes over the ruleship. He's not king technically, but he also adopts the role of high priest. At this point, the Qumran settlement is thought to be established. The Essenes are growing at this point. Those were the men, the scribes that were at Qumran that wrote down all of And copied the scriptures and hid them in the caves and that's what we find thousands of years later. Then after Jonathan dies, Simon takes over the last surviving brother Simon. He eventually achieves complete independence from the Seleucids. He takes over as high priest. The Essenes hate him. They retreat out into the wilderness because they want nothing to do with society. They want to be able to worship how they want to worship. They refer to him as that wicked priest. He at this point Uh, Gains further independence and the recognition from the powers around them. And there's this republic now growing in power over in Rome. And Simon is the first to reach out to Rome to gain their approval for his workmanship there. So it's almost like a country forms and reaches out to the UN and they're officially recognized as a country. At this point, Jewish coins start to be printed for the first time ever He dies, and his son, John Hyrcanus, takes over. And he had a military zeal to him. He forced the conversion of the Edomites, also known as the Edomians. Now, this would end up having a pretty significant domino effect down the road. So he is conquering the nations around them and forcing them to convert to Judaism. And he goes to the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, And he forces them. It's either believe this way or die. Many of them convert, but they're never seen as really being truly Jewish. The truly Jewish people still look down on them. The most well-known descendant of the Idumeans is Herod the Great. It's at this point that Herod's family, his ancestors, are incorporated into quote-unquote Judah, a domino that's going to fall further down the line. He also goes into Samaria, and he destroys the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, which really doesn't go very far with creating good relations with Samaria. When we see Jesus come, and we see that divide between the Samaritans and the Jews, it was really aggravated at this point. It is a point of no return. He was very worldly, and this is one of those situations where the Sadducees and Pharisees got together and agreed on something, and they both hated him. He dies... Then his son, Aristobulus, takes over and he takes the title of king for the first time. So their first king of the Hasmonean line. He is also, you'll notice, has a Greek name. Things are starting to not go in the direction that Mattathias would want them to go in, the, the leader of the Maccabees. Aristobulus dies and his brother, Alexander janaeus takes over. Alexander janaeus was a bad guy. Dude, bad guy. He marries his brother's widow, Salome Alexandra, and that's going to be important in a little bit. And he crucified 800 people, Jews, at a banquet. He hung them all up and killed them all at a banquet while they ate. While they are dying, brought in their their wives and children and killed them in front of them so that the last thing that they would see was their their family dying. He killed... 6,000 Pharisees on Sukkot. Uh, Sukkot was the, obse- the, the festival of booths, which was what they celebrated to observe the deliverance from Egypt. And they would set up tents. And he got up, and he departed from the tradition of Sukkot. Part of the tradition is actually a quick side story. I was in Jerusalem during Sukkot. They have like fronds, and they have a citrus that they hold. And I was in a synagogue in Jerusalem, observing this religious thing, and I'm sitting next to a guy from New York City who flew to Jerusalem to observe Sukkot in Jerusalem. And so I asked them, I said, what's the deal with the fronds and the citrus and waving them in different directions? He said, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just do this because it's what we do. <laughs> Alexander Janaeus gets up, and he departs from it, and they all have citruses in their hand, and they all start pelting them with the citruses the citrus fruit. The Pharisees stand up and rebel against him because he is ruining the religious observances and he kills 6,000 Pharisees. One author said that he, quote unquote, had a genius for alienating his own people. <laughs> Alexander janaeus kicks the bucket and he doesn't have an heir uh, that's old enough, so his wife takes over, Salome Alexandra. She actually ends up being a great leader after being married to two tyrants. She heals the relationship with the Pharisees, and you have the golden age during this small window from 76 to 67. And she is a, a godly woman by all accounts. After Salome dies, she has two sons, and this is important: Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. You'll see them on the timeline. They fight back and forth for control, except Hyrcanus II. Really is a pushover. He's a softy. And he just wants to be a high priest. He doesn't want to rule. And Aristobulus is power hungry. And he wants kingship. You have a four year civil war going on between parties going back and forth with them. You have the Sadducees on one side and the Pharisees on the other. And they're now killing each other, Jew against Jew, in the Holy Land, in Judea, going against each other. Now that the land is in complete chaos. An empire called Rome pops up. Hyrcanus II, Aristobulus II are fighting with each other. During this time, you have Rome popping up. And you have the first triumvirate of Julius Caesar, Crassius, and Pompey. These three are ruling, conquering the world, but it doesn't last long. Caesar brings in his army into Rome, crosses the Rubicon River, and declares war. Crassus dies in 53 B.C., leaving just Caesar and Pompey, and they're fighting back and forth. Eventually Caesar conquers Pompey. Pompey was a very prolific military conqueror, and he conquered the land of Judea. The Seleucids are gone, and he comes through, and they are now the controlling power. And anything that's going to happen in Israel, this is the same time that there's a civil war going on in Israel. Now really the ruling power is Rome at this point, and they don't leave until 614 A.D. So they're there for a long time. Pompey's assassinated in Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt. I want to go back and rewind a little bit to the country of Edomia. They were forced, converted into Judaism. You have this really genius, intelligent guy named Antipater I. Antipater is the opportunist of opportunists, and he is looking licks his finger, sticks it in the air. He is a genius when it comes to knowing the climate and which side that he needs to pick. He looks at Hyrcanus II and says, there's a guy that can be controlled. He has a right to the throne, and I can help him, and then I can have power through him, because he's not going to say no to me if I help him. It was a big supporter of Pompey, but then... Julius Caesar gets in power. He finds himself in trouble in Alexandria. Antipater brings thousands of guys down to Alexandria and ends up saving Julius Caesar's life. At this point, Julius Caesar, as a thanks to him, says, You are now the procurator of Judea. Not king, but he now has some authority. Antipater restores order within Judea, and he puts in Hyrcanus II as high priest. Hyrcanus didn't want power, and Hyrcanus II became Antipater's puppet. He's able to restore order to the region for the first time, and Rome recognizes that, and then ends up giving more authority to Antipater. So previously, it's like you're a procurator, but Hyrcanus II still kind of has control, but really, Hyrcanus II didn't want anything to do with control. Antipater starts to get more and more power. Antipater has a few sons. He puts both of them in charge of Jerusalem and Galilee, respectively. Phasileus and the other son was named Herod. Antipater sides with the Roman politics. He ends up being poisoned to death in 43 BC. And then, once this happens, it sets the stage for Herod the Great. Herod the Great doesn't inherit his throne right away. This is pretty interesting. If you look at the timeline, you'll notice the son of Aristobulus II. His name is Antigonus. Antigonus. Antigonus is still around, and he has technically a right to the throne as an heir of Aristobulus II. It is at this point, I had mentioned a little bit ago, that there was uh, Perithians in the east. And he gets them on his side and comes in and gains control of Jerusalem, and Herod has to run for his life. So Herod is able to escape with his life. Antigonus rules in Jerusalem for three years. Herod ends up going to Rome, and there Herod is declared king of the Jews. Significant? The Roman Senate in 40 B.C. declares that Herod is officially, quote-unquote, their words, king of the Jews. Now Herod has the support of Rome, because of everything that his father did and that he had done in support of Rome, Rome is now saying, We're going to support you. We're going to help you kick out Antigonus and the Perithians. And so they come in, and Herod comes back to Jerusalem, back to Judea, with Rome behind him and the muscle of Rome, the empire of Rome. And they conquer to the point where Herod is bothered with the destruction and hey hey Rome why don't we let up a little bit because I'm not going to have an empire to rule if you keep going at this pace that at this point Antigonus is captured he is shipped off back to Rome and he's beheaded then you see a time of great great productivity in the land Herod did a lot of great things he should have been considered one of the greatest rulers in Judah's history he expanded the kingdom And built a ton of stuff. Caesarea Maritime, or Maritima, Maritima, was a city. Now, if you notice, if you ever looked at a map of Israel, what does the coast lack? A port. It is flat. There is no natural jetty at all. There's no place for boats to come in the dock where the waves aren't going to destroy them. It doesn't have a port. Herod recognizes this as being a problem. So he builds one. And it's actually pretty fascinating. You can go and it's mostly underwater now. He built up a city and built a huge jetty, a port in Caesarea Maritime, named after Caesar. And that really becomes the capital for Israel. That whoever is ruling Israel is going to do it from there. He also built Machpela, which is a sanctuary in Hebron. Theaters. He built hippodromes. He built aqueducts. It was a time of building fortresses, the Herodium. Masada, if you've ever heard of Masada, Machairus he built, and most importantly, he restored the temple in Jerusalem. And not because he was a big religious observer, but it was a way to throw a bone to the Jews to get them to, to follow along and to appease them. It said, and many said that it surpassed the beauty of Solomon's temple with the amount of, of gold that he put in the place. That it was this gorgeous, gorgeous place. With all of the marble that he brought in. It said it lit up the the hillside on the other side when the sun hit it. There was so much white marble in it that it it made like the city and the hillside glow. He does a lot of building projects. You see the picture on the left here is a reproduction of Herod's temple. If you go to Jerusalem, a uh, trivia fact. I was actually standing next to this model when I found out about 9-11 and the planes hitting the, the buildings. We were actually standing next to this looking at it when the security guard came out of the security shack and said you might want to leave because <laughs> uh, some bad stuff's happening. The picture on the right, you see Solomon's portico here on the left-hand side there, and then you see a big fortress to the right of that. That is something that he built that the Romans would use in the future where they were, they were able to see down into the temple. And so when Paul is in the temple, when he goes there and he gets mobbed, and torn apart, and it talks about how they saw them, that's where they would have been. They would have been looking down. He built it purposely so they could keep an eye on the the Jews in the temple. This is Masada. It is right by the Dead Sea in the Judean wilderness. It is like a whole town. There's a gigantic cistern that you can walk down into underneath this. It is breathtaking. There is a challenge of running up. There's like a snake path that you go up, and a bunch of people... I tried running up it. I got so sick, I ended up getting to the top, and I threw up off the side of Masada. But then I got to watch the sunrise, and it was gorgeous. uh, I thought it would be easy, but it turned out to be incredibly difficult. It was a long, winding road. This would be used later on in the the Jewish rebellion, where they go up, and they killed all of the, the people up there, and they had a stronghold. And still to this day, if you're looking westward, on the east side is the Dead Sea. On the west, is the Judean Wilderness. You can still see the camps that the Romans built up and the siege ramp that they built in order to get up and get to the rebellion. And This is around 70 AD. Another building of Herod's. This is Herodium, uh, a breathtaking place. I think, this is, I think this is actually where he was buried, right? He was buried at the Herodium? Bethlehem, yeah, right outside of Bethlehem. He built this mound with a little castle on top and this villa down below. It was beautiful, gorgeous. Machairus here, another fortress that he built. This is Caesarea Maritime. This is what it looks like today. This is uh, the amphitheater that he built uh, that you can still go to. This is the Hippodrome in Caesarea Maritime that Herod built, where they would have like chariot races and horse races, a lot of stuff. But that's not what he's ultimately known for. He's ultimately known for going crazy. Caesar Augustus said it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. He suffered from extreme paranoia. To go down a list here, Aristobulus third was killed in 35 BC. Now, he wasn't a descendant of Herod, but he was the last legitimate Hasmonean claimant. So the last descendant of the Hasmonean line from the Maccabees, Herod had him killed because he didn't want to have to worry about someone else being able to come up and take c- control. He was a seventeen year old priest, and he accidentally drowned in a bathhouse, so he knocked him off Hyrcanus the second so this poor guy, all he wanted to do was be priest. <laughs> all he wanted to be was be high priest antigonus i didn 't mention this, but when Antigonus came in, he captured Herod escaped Hyrcanus the second didn 't escape, and he didn 't want Hyrcanus to be able to be high priest again, so he cut off his ears so that he would be not able to serve as a pure high priest. Herod still had him around, and he's in his 80s at this point. He became so ridiculously paranoid that he had Hyrcanus II knocked off. Mariam was a Hasmonean that he had married. It was his, his true love, and he killed her. She bore him twin sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, and they were killed in 7 BC. Antipater was the successor in his will. He had him killed only days before Herod ends up dying himself. He's on his deathbed. He died an absolutely gruesome and painful death. He knew he was dying, but he was still so paranoid that he had his son, who was supposed to be his heir, killed when he was on his own deathbed. This is why we know that we have the murder of the children in Bethlehem. And people, some people say, like, well, that's not written in any history books. Why don't we have any account of it? It's because it was normal. This wasn't out of the norm for Herod. He was insane. And so when someone comes and tells him that someone's been born king of the Jews, which the Roman Senate put that title onto him, when someone comes and tells him that, he said, no, no, he's killed his wife. He has killed numerous sons. He has killed anyone that had any right to the throne." Why wouldn't he go and kill a bunch of children? He already killed his own. Before he dies, he ordered a bunch of nobles, Pharisees to be gathered together at the Hippodrome. He said when he died, he knew that no one in the country would be sad. And so he said, I want you to gather, I think it was 600 people together, and I want you to murder all of them once I die. Because I want to force people to mourn. If they're not going to be sad for me, they're going to be sad because I killed 600 other people. This was Herod the Great. (laughs) This is the climate that Jesus is born into. This is what's going on. This is the paranoia that exists when Joseph and Mary go down because of the decree of Caesar Augustus in Rome for the counting. This is what's going on. This is why it's such a dangerous place to be involved in. He dies, and his sons, they split up the kingdom between his sons. Because we know that Jesus goes down to Egypt. They end up coming up out of Egypt. They're sent to Egypt because of Herod the Great, because he's insane, and he wants to kill anyone that would want to take his kingdom. When they come back, what do they hear? What are they warned about? His son, Herod the Great's son, is reigning. Archelaus. Now, Archelaus inherited his father's insanity, but not his father's genius. Archelaus is ruling that white area, most of Judea. He is appointed the ethnarch of Judea, but he was corrupt and inept. He was an idiot. (laughs) He did everything he could, again, to to aggravate the Jews. In Josephus, it's written that he slaughtered 3,000 people at Passover. This is a quote from the, the history of Josephus. The people were slaughtered like sheep, side by side, with temple offerings in their hands. And the temple was filled with the dead. This was Herod's son. When he, Joseph and Mary are warned, you may not want to settle down anywhere in this white area. Why don't you go back up north to Nazareth where it's a little bit safer? It's Because Archelaus, he was crazy. He was a nut job. And there are th- two situations where the Samaritans and Jews get together. This is the second one. They both appeal to Rome and said, you have to get rid of this guy. They deport Archelaus and they ship him out to Gaul, which is like no man's land. It's where you go to die in misery and be completely irrelevant. They replace him. They say, no more line of Herod. Now we're going to have what we call procurators rule Judea. You see, all the way up, it it includes, uh, eventually reaches up to Caesarea Maritime. That's where the procurator stays. The most well-known procurator, the fifth procurator of Judea, is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate ruled from Caesarea Maritime, where Herod the Great had built, and he was known for making foolish decisions to make the Jews angry. He hung up Roman shields in the temple. He robbed the Temple of Funds. The Samaritans had an uprising underneath him. This is all during the life of Christ. Another one of Herod's descendants is Philip. The Tetrarch. Philip was more or less irrelevant. He was given northern Galilee, mostly a Gentile area. He builds the city of Caesarea Philippi and Bethsaida, two cities that we see in the New Testament in the life of Christ. Then you have Herod Antipas. We are familiar with Herod Antipas. He rules the area of Galilee and Perea. Perea is the other side of the Jordan River. What do we know Herod Antipas from? He kills John the Baptist. John the Baptist calls him out because Herod Antipas, Herod the great son, stole Philip, his brother, stole his wife. And John the Baptist calls him out and says, that's not appropriate. Then Herod's wife, her daughter, says to her, what do you want? I'll give you anything. She says, give me the head of John the Baptist. And so he beheads John the Baptist. He ends up interrogating Jesus himself. He built Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee, which was actually built on top of a graveyard. And so no Jew would go near the city. Uh, it was a completely Gentile city because he built it on top of a graveyard. Herodias, his wife, later on down the road, pressures him to try to take control of the whole country and become king. And guess what happens? He's sent off to Gaul. He's seen as a troublemaker and says... Go to the land of the irrelevant. It's interesting to study the the history of Gaul himself because Julius Caesar was sent there because they wanted to make Julius Caesar irrelevant previously, except he actually built an army and brought it back to Rome and ended up conquering it. Herod, Antipas, and Archelaus didn't do that. Then you have Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod. Interestingly, he was safe in Herod's family because he was sent off to Rome. And do you know who he grew up with? A guy named Caligula and a guy named Claudius who became Roman emperors who hated Christians and Jews. And Claudius, if you remember, is the emperor who kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. When we study the context of the book of Romans, he's the guy who kicks them all out. Claudius wants to reward his buddy that he grew up with, Herod Agrippa, He makes Herod Agrippa, quote unquote, king of the Jews. You can read in Acts 12 how his life died. Uh, He died a horrible death in Caesarea, eaten by worms, in the place that his grandfather built. Then you see Herod Agrippa II, the great grandson of Herod the Great. He remained loyal to Rome throughout the rebellion. As you fast forward the Jewish rebellion in 70 AD, he turns on his people and says, basically, have Adam, they're not my people, I'm loyal to Rome. When Paul gets arrested, he's the one who hears Paul's defense at Caesarea, in Caesarea Maritime, the place that Herod the Great built. He rejected Paul's testimony. So that's it. That is a few hundred years in a few minutes. All this to say, just because Scripture was silent during this time didn't mean that God wasn't working. And that God is working so that when Christ is born... You understand the political climate that is existing. You have a country that has struggled and fought against Hellenization on so many different levels, only to have Rome come in and spread their own culture, which was basically, they just took everything that was Greek and renamed it and gave it Latin names. You have the fever of the Maccabees still alive. That is why you have people popping up wanting to get a Messiah that's going to rise up like Mattathias did and rise up and kick the people out like Judah the Maccabee, the hammer, to to rise up and to kick the people out. But you also see a fascinating way in which the world around them develops to the point Rome comes in and is a power that actually ends up aiding the spread of the gospel in ways that wouldn't have been possible A 100 years before, there's a universal language. There are roads. Even Herod the Great had these great cities built and aqueducts built to be able to sustain life in areas where it was impossible beforehand. And that even behind all of these wicked, wicked rulers and these men that were power-hungry for their own gains and their own ends, you can see the sovereign hand of God behind it working to mold and shape the culture so that it was ready for the Messiah to come. That's the setting that you get when you see the angels come and proclaim the good news. Jesus is born. The, the Messiah has come. That is the good news and the thirst that the people have. Even at the, a week before Palm Sunday, the week before he, he ends up dying, the people are throwing palm fronds down and singing Hosanna, that they want a deliverer to come and to deliver them. They thought that Jesus was that person. And this is all the culture that had built up over time and that they're fighting against. And as another side note, a point of application, you also understand the fight of the Jews against Christianity in the early church. They had fought so fiercely to preserve their faith, their law, their way of life. And now you have these Jews coming in and preaching that the Messiah had come and that the, you needed no, you didn't any longer have to adhere to the law. And they had spent hundreds of years fighting to protect, to protect it, oftentimes giving up their own lives on account of it. That's the mentality that Saul had, that he was born with and raised with, that they had something that they were fighting for. So you see all of these things when you come to understand the context of it. So. I hope that was interesting for you and gave you a little bit of a history lesson and I hope it wasn't too long. I probably did go longer than I should have. I hope it was interesting to you and if you do want to read up more, I encourage you, open up the book of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Uh, We have Josephus in the library or you can get it free on the kill or purchase it for yourself. It is a fascinating read and it includes more history beyond this uh, into the Jewish rebellion in the years after Christ. Why don't we close in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you for God, your sovereign control, even when you are silent from a verbal, revelational standpoint, God, we know that you are active, God, that you are not a God of the deists who stands in the background, Lord, but you are active, God, you are working in humanity, even today, Lord, to to work things and nations and rulers out in a way in which people can hear your word and the gospel lord and to, to serve your purposes lord and we're not always privy to that we don't know what you're what's going on we don't know how you're moving lord but god we can look back at history and see how you sovereignly use different nations and empires to serve your will god completely apart from their own knowledge lord but you did it and you have continued to do it today lord and we pray that we would trust in that sovereignty and and see that you are still a god who is active and living today god we praise your name amen